All right. So as Jeff mentioned earlier, this is our last Sunday in the book of First Peter. And this morning, we're really going to be focusing on verses 6 through 11. You know, verses 12 to 14 are riveting. It's still the Word of God, but it's mainly just a, see you guys. Um, so we're not going to spend too much time on that, but we're really going to dig into uh, verses 6 through 11 this morning. But before we do that, would you take a moment to, to pray with me? Father in heaven, this morning, we, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you for the reality that you're our Father and that you're not distant, uh, that you care enough for us uh, to make yourself known to us. So God, we, we pray uh, that as we hear this text this morning, we would hear our Father speaking to us, uh, that we would be freed by the Spirit, that we'd be moved by the Spirit to begin casting our anxieties on you because we know that you love us and that you care for us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, many of mine and Katie's friends are therapists. It sounds like it's the beginning of a joke. It's not. It's just true. Uh, we have a lot of therapists in our lives. And among uh, our therapist friends, there is a and a skit that is uh, rather infamous. It's a Mad TV skit. Does anyone remember Mad TV? Anyway, uh, it's a Mad TV skit featuring Bob Newhart. Does anyone remember Bob Newhart for that matter? Uh, old comedian used to have a show. It's now in his 90s. Anyway, uh, but the skit uh, by Mad TV featuring Bob Newhart, uh, in it, Bob Newhart plays a therapist and a young woman. Um, I call her young now because she's probably my age. She's not young by most people's standards. Anyway, a young woman comes to see him, and uh, she's got a problem. She's dealing with anxiety. And uh, before he begins to, to hear her out and, and to try to offer uh, help and aid, uh, he begins by talking about his price structure. So he tells her, all right, before we begin, just want you to know that our session is going to cost $5. It's $5 for the first five minutes. It's free after that, but I guarantee that we're not going to need the full five minutes. She says, okay, sounds great. So after she agrees, he looks at her, looks at his watch and says, go. She's taken it back a little bit, and so she begins, and she explains that she, again, is dealing with anxiety. In fact, she's dealing with a particular fear. She is afraid of being buried alive in a box, so Newhart hears that, and, and he asks her the very reasonable question, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she says, no, uh, but that the fear has become paralyzing for her. Um, she finds that she can't go into tunnels or into elevators or, or houses. Anything box-shaped is, is problematic. And so he hears this, and, and, and he, he lets her go on for a little bit longer, and, and he stops her eventually, and he says, okay, I've got two words for you that I think are going to change things. And I want you to hear those words and internalize them. And I want you to apply them to your life outside of this office. And she asks me, should I write it down? She says, and he says, it's two words. You could probably remember it. So he says, are you ready? She says, yes. He says, stop it. <laughs> and she's taken aback. She's like, well, wait a second. Uh, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, I, I say this to everyone, and I'm always surprised when they respond by saying, what do you mean by this? It's two words, S-T-O-P-I-T, our new word, I-T, stop it. 
she says, well, what do you mean by stop it? And he continues on, and she begins to push back, and he eventually reaches a breaking point at the end of the five minutes, and he says, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> now, I don't think many of us would be particularly happy about spending even $5 for that type of advice. But unfortunately, I think many of us, especially as Christians, have that as our sort of default tendency, right? When, when strong feelings arise, especially feelings of anxiety, we have this impulse within us to just say, stop it, right? To push it down deep and try to move on. And when that inevitably doesn't work, feelings of guilt and shame often follow. But thankfully, God takes better care of our, of our psyche than Bob Newhart. The biblical call, the biblical advice to dealing with feelings of anxiety isn't to, ignore, isn't to ignore them or to push them down. It's to, as we read in verse 7, to cast them on God, knowing that He cares for us, that He is sovereign over our lives and the things that we face and that He is right there with us, no matter what. So this morning, we're going, we're going to close our study of 1 Peter by looking at verses 6 through 11, and we're going to do so in three parts. All right, we'll see God's command, the urgency to heed God's command, and the reward for doing so. All right, so we're going to begin first by looking at God's command. So last week, we, we saw this call from verse 5. Peter tells us, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that call for humility continues on into this section as our passage opens with these words in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is an important word for us, largely because it is so countercultural. We don't tend to emphasize humility or seek after it. Now, while we might emphasize and promote the self in new ways, right, we've got a million different forums for doing so, think in influencers in the wild, right, our obsession with self isn't new. Right? Our hearts have been bent inward ever since the fall. And humility isn't any less popular now than it was in the first century when Peter penned these words. In fact, there was a contemporary of Peter, a Greek philosopher named Epictetus, who listed meekness or humility as first in a list of vices. We tend as human beings to exalt the proud and ignore the humble. But God does the opposite. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So the opening command of this text is to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And how do we go about doing that? Well, let's look at verses 6 and 7 together. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. See, we have a tendency to separate verses 6 and 7 as though they are two separate commands. Humble yourselves and then cast your anxieties on Him. But as you see here, and this is the case in the original language as well, this is all one sentence. 
Peter is telling us that one of the ways that we are to humble ourselves before God is by casting our anxieties on Him. These two thoughts are, are, are interconnected. See, we don't often link anxiety and pride, but that is exactly what we see in this text. Now, it's not saying that pride is the cause of anxiety, but, we're being, but what we're being warned against here is handling our anxiety in a prideful way. And what does that mean? It means clinging to it. It means trying to handle it on our own. You can think of it this way. Uh, anyone who has spent a significant amount of time with toddlers has inevitably heard the phrase or a variation of the phrase, I do it myself, right? And there's a whole range of things that toddlers think that they have the capacity to do on their own. Things like doing their hair, brushing their teeth, getting dressed, cooking. And what is the end result for most of those activities if, left, if a toddler is left to fend for him or herself? Disaster. Right. So, oh, great, you, you got dressed and you somehow managed to put your clothes on not only backwards but also inside out. It's amazing. Now, toddlers can do a whole lot of things, but their abilities and perspectives are limited. Right? They're lost without help, without guidance. Well, friends, the chasm that exists between a parent and a toddler, it pales in comparison to the chasm that exists between us and God. See, toddlers grow up. They become adults, sometimes even parents themselves. But we will never grow up to become God. Our need for help, therefore, is so much greater, which makes our insistence on handling things on our own so much more foolish. Look, Peter is writing to a group of people who are suffering. Persecution has come to these Christians. More is on the way. He takes for granted the fact that they are struggling with anxiety. I mean, notice how verse 7 is phrased. He's not saying, you know, for those oddballs who struggle with the occasional anxious feeling, this is what you should do with it. No, he's, he's saying, you're humans, therefore you're anxious. And when those uh, feelings of anxiety come along, this is how, what you're supposed to do with it. Right? He just takes it as a natural course of life in a fallen world. And note what his advice is not. He doesn't look at them and say, stop it. No. Instead, his advice is that when anxiety comes, and it will, he says to cast it on God. Now, the word translated cast is this Greek word. It's epi <laughs> I, I was practicing my pronunciation this morning. Jeff was helping me. He was in uh, Greek before or more recently than I was. Okay. It's epiripto. Thank you. Uh, it means to throw something upon someone else. And the background for this statement is in the Septuagint version of Psalm 55:22. Now, the Septuagint would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written a couple hundred years before the New Testament was written. And it's one that the New Testament authors frequently referred to because they were writing themselves in Greek. So it was a, it was a more convenient choice. But in the Septuagint version of Psalm 55:22, we read this. Cast your care on the Lord and he himself will nurture you. And the word translated care in this psalm is the same word that's translated as anxieties in our text. 
It's the word, another Greek one, merimna. And it could also be translated as burdens, concerns, things one is anxious or worried about. And this is the word that Paul uses in his second letter to to the Corinthian church when he writes, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So a couple of things to note about anxiety from our text and the similar command in Psalm 55, 22. Peter, the psalmist, other biblical authors seem to take for granted, again, the fact that we are going to struggle at various points with anxiety. That is part and parcel of life in a fallen world. We are going to feel burdened, weighed down, overwhelmed, worried. And all of those things are so prevalent today, aren't they? Our culture is aching right now. In fact, back in December, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a national advisory warning of a massive mental health crisis amongst young people, including an increase in suicidal ideation, depression, and anxiety. And this advisory came after the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association jointly declared a national emergency in youth mental health earlier in the year. And this isn't simply a problem affecting young people. According to a recent study by the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, yes, we have one of those, one in five adults experience anxiety in ways that can be paralyzing. This led one author to declare, being overwhelmed is the new normal for many people. And why are we feeling anxious and overwhelmed? Life. Life does this to us. One author defines anxiety as an over-emotional reaction to an uncertain situation. We face a whole lot of uncertainty in this life, don't we? And because we're not robots, and because sin is prevalent and it makes a mess of things, we're going to have feelings about that uncertainty. So think for a minute. Where are you struggling with anxiety? Where are you facing uncertainty? What's making you anxious? Perhaps it's relational, right? A strain between a parent or one of your kids, and you're just not quite sure how you're going to mend it, or if you will. Maybe it's something at work. Perhaps you are absolutely swamped right now, and you don't know how you're going to keep your head above water. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe things have been so slow for so long, you don't know how you're going to make it. Or maybe you're looking for work and things just aren't panning out. Maybe you're about to make a huge transition in your life and it's hard for you not to focus on all the things that have the potential to go wrong. Maybe you're worried about your health and you don't know if you're ever going to feel quote-unquote normal again. So many uncertainties. So many burdens, so many things that can go wrong. Anxiety is understandable. Some of you are probably feeling anxious just me talking right now. So how do we as Christians respond? Well, I think it is very important to establish, once again, we don't take Bob Newhart's advice. We don't simply say stop it and move on. 
We're going to have feelings about situations that we face, feelings of uncertainty and stress, even fear. And those feelings in and of themselves aren't the thing that we need to avoid. And you know what? There is good biblical precedent for leaning in to our feelings. We already looked at 2 Corinthians 11.28, in which Paul talks about his own anxiety. And in Psalm 13, we encounter David's anxiety, a man, we're told, uh, who is after God's own heart. Read these words from David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David is encountering incredible hardship. He faces real fears about his future. He wants to know where God is, what he is up to in the midst of it. He wants to know that everything's going to be okay. Even Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, was in agony over the prospect of the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we read these words from him. He says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And in Luke's telling of this same event, he records, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus himself in this moment was in agony, deeply burdened about the events that he was about to face. All of these important biblical figures, including God himself in the person of Jesus, felt real feelings, and they didn't shy away from them, which I think is something that Christians need to be reminded of. Too often, we run away from our feelings, especially feelings of anxiety. Right? We think of biblical commands like what we read in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so when feelings of anxiety arise, we think that we should say, stop it and move on. Forgetting that Paul, the one who penned these words, is also the one who identifies with anxiety in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. So what does all of that mean? Well, again, it means we don't need to fear what's going on in our hearts. By no means do our feelings get the final say. But being faithful to the Bible doesn't involve pushing them down, ignoring them, running away from them. In fact, nothing exacerbates feelings of anxiety like ignoring feelings of anxiety. It is a vicious cycle, and I don't recommend that you get into it. Now, I'm going to admit that this sort of uh, put your head down, ignore your feelings is 100% my tendency. Um, and for the most part, it has been a relatively effective strategy for me, um, except for when it hasn't been. <laughs> uh, in, in recent years, uh, I've 
found that if I ignore stress, if I ignore my feelings, if I just kind of put my head down and, and try to push through things, uh, my body actually keeps score. Um, and it's manifested itself in a particular condition. Uh, it's happened to me three times over the, the last probably seven years um, called a central serous chorioretinopathy. It's a, it's a hoot. Um, so what happens is I get uh, fluid buildup in my macula and uh, I have a hole in my central vision. So I see everything around this gray spot, but there's this gray spot, which when you're reading and studying and doing all sorts of things is super inconvenient. So the first time that it happened to me, uh, it was around the time that Oliver was born. In fact, he had just been born. I was kind of freaking out. It's like, am I, am I going blind? Um, and I went to a retina specialist, and he explained what it was. And so I told him, like, you know, am I going to need surgery? What's, what's, what's happening? Is there something wrong? He's like, structurally, everything is fine. This condition is a result of stress. I'm like, I'm not stressed. What are you talking about? And then he, he began to ask me some, some questions. He started to play therapist. He's like, well, what's going on in your life? And so then I thought about it. It's like, okay, I got a newborn. We just became parents. I just started a doctorate. I just took on another job. Uh, uh, I'm stressed. Okay, yes, that's what's happening. And so his advice to me was, uh, get some sleep. And I'm like, tell that to my newborn. That's awesome. Um, before I started going blind in an eye, if you would have asked me again, are you feeling stressed? He's like, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And then my body told me otherwise. The reality is that when we don't allow ourselves to feel what's going on inside, when we try to brush it aside to move past it, things tend to get worse. Emotions aren't something to be feared or ignored. The biblical call is not to run away from them, to simply say, stop it. Instead, it is to cast our anxieties on God, knowing that He cares for us. What was David doing in Psalm 13 when he asked God how long? What was Jesus doing in the garden when he was in agony? They were doing exactly this. They were crying out to God, asking Him for help. They were aware of what was going on in their hearts. And they were being real with that. But most importantly, most importantly, they were bringing their needs to God. And they knew that they could do so because he cared for them. And friends, in Jesus, we have the ultimate assurance of God's deep care for us. Why? Because Jesus was willing to die for us. You don't shed blood for people that you are indifferent toward. The one we bring our anxiety to is the one who cared enough for us to die on our behalf. So again, think, what are you facing right now? What is making you anxious? God is calling you today to be real about that and also to humble yourself by bringing your anxiety to him. He knows what you are going through, and He cares. All right, so our primary command in this text is to humble ourselves by casting our anxieties under the mighty hand of God, trusting that He cares for us. And this call is intensified in the verses that follow. It's, it's given a bit of urgency. So I want us to look at verses 8 through 9 together. 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. In case you are anxious, you know, don't worry. Seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So in these verses, we are being uh, admonished to be sober-minded and watchful. We're being told that to take God's commands seriously. And we saw this back, we saw these same uh, words back in chapter 4 connected to the return of Jesus, right? We need to be sober-minded and watchful because Jesus is coming back. But here we're given additional reason to be sober-minded and watchful. And that reason is that we have an enemy, the devil, Here he is compared to a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Now, this is a a challenging topic for us, and one that that we have a tendency to err on in in two different directions, to mess up in one of two ways. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters, points that out, writing, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. He himself is equally pleased by both errors and hails a materialist or a magician with the same delight. One pastor has referred to these two tendencies as superstition or substition. Superstition being a sort of overemphasis, seeing the devil behind everything, living in constant fear of him, wanting to treat every problem with an exorcism. At the end of the day, they're giving the devil way too much credit. Substition, on the other hand, disregards the very idea of the devil, regarding it as as, as the the sort of thing of fairy tales. I heard one seminary professor compare the devil uh, to a particular type of, of horned toad that lives in Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, he said that when you first approach this toad, its, its first defense mechanism is to puff itself way up so it makes itself look big and mean and ugly. But if that doesn't work, if you keep approaching it, it'll take the opposite tactic. It'll shrivel up and turn on its back, close its eyes, and play dead. And he says that's essentially superstition and substition in a nutshell. And these are the two extremes, again, that we can fall into. Our text is telling us to take the presence of the enemy very seriously, as seriously as you would take the presence of a roaring lion. That's that's a big deal, right? We shouldn't take it lightly. At the same time, though, we shouldn't give the devil more credit than he deserves. He is not omnipotent. We need to be watchful and sober-minded, but not afraid. And what's the main thing that we need to be watchful and sober-minded of? Our own hearts. Because one of the primary ways that we will experience spiritual assaults is through the presence of indwelling sin. For example, in 1 Peter 3.6, Paul instructs Timothy that officers in the church shouldn't be recent converts. Why not? Because someone who hasn't walked with Jesus for any length of time is more likely to become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. And in Ephesians, Paul gives this instruction. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
The NIV translates verse 27 in this way, and do not give the devil a foothold. So how does the devil obtain a foothold? Through indwelling sin. We don't need holy water or incantations to fight against him. We need just plain old holiness. We resist the devil by resisting sin. In the 1600s, an English pastor named William Gurnall wrote a book dealing with the devil and his attacks called The Christian in Complete Armor. And in it, he has this great reminder. He says, if men hear a noise in the night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit or if you have resentment, you are under his power. He's setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride saying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror. Our passage this morning calls us to resist the devil firm in our faith. Again, how do we do that? We do that by resisting sin. And the specific sin being referred to here is pride. And what does that look like? How do we resist sin? Or how do we resist the sin of pride according to this passage? Again, by casting all our anxieties on God because He cares for us. Instead of clinging to our worries and fears, trying to handle them on our own, thinking that despite our many limitations, that we can somehow take care of it ourselves. Instead of saying to God, I do it myself, we humble ourselves under His mighty hand. We admit, I am not sufficient to meet the problems that I face on my own. I need you in order to handle them. We ask the one who cares for us to take care of us. And when we resist the pride that causes us to cling to our anxieties, we have the assurance that God will, in fact, take care of us. This section concludes with the reward for heeding God's commands. So let's look at verses 10 and 11 together. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, in this life, we will have trouble. We will face suffering. Suffering that on our own, we are not able to bear. But when we surrender to God, when we cast our anxiety on Him, when we give up the notion that we can handle things on our own, we have this promise from our gracious God that He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Like I know that when we talk about anxiety, we are treading into painful territory. Most people aren't anxious without reason. We, we become anxious b- because of deep hurt that either we or people close to us have experienced. But friends, we are not left to, de- to deal with it on our own. We don't have to fend for ourselves. 
no matter what we face, the God of all grace is with us. And He will make it right in the end. This is why Paul, who had been beaten, scorned, flogged, shipwrecked, left for dead, abandoned by his friends, had seen his friends persecuted and killed for their faith. That's why even he could say of his suffering, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Despite what you might be feeling, you are not alone. God knows what you are going through, and He cares. He cares deeply, and He invites you to give Him your hurt, to give Him your pain, to give Him your anxiety, knowing that He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would give us the wisdom, the insight, the trust, the faith to cast our anxiety on you. Lord, help us to face it, to call it what it is, to not ignore it or deny it, but to confess it and to give it up. Father, help us to humble ourselves by giving you our worries. We don't have it in us to battle the different things that we face, but you do. So Lord, help us to see that. Help us to know your fatherly care over us. Help us to behold that in the, in the amazing sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Father, when we are inclined to, to be anxious, when we feel fear rising up within us, Lord, help us to look to him. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.